Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. BT Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by Miguel Delaney of The Independent and Dominic Fifield of The Athletic. I've been to Everton to see Sean Dyche. He was one of our first guests on this podcast and is back in his element in a nine-team relegation struggle. Of those teams, Leicester represent the dream. 5,000 to 1 winners of the Premier League. Now, the nightmare of the drop looms. Migs, do you hold out much hope for them after another really damaging defeat? If it was a relatively normal Premier League season, and I'm not sure you can even say that of one about five years ago, but going back that far, then no, because it just feels the, the direction of travel is clear, performances are bad, it's difficult to see where results and wins are coming from. But this season, just because it's so chaotic and any sort of win, even the flukiest of wins, can suddenly change the entire profile of the ball. I mean, even if you, if you look at yesterday's game, it, as we went into the final minutes, one goal could have taken Leicester into 14th. Instead, they conceded one and everything looks much worse. That is why there is still some hope. But if you're actually looking in terms of their performances and what they do next, there's an awful lot less. What about the timing of the managerial change, Dom? Okay, winless run now stretches to eight after that defeat on Tuesday night. Should they have taken the decision on Brendan Rodgers a little earlier, perhaps? Because they're almost stuck betwixt and between here, aren't they? You know, in handing things over to a relatively minor member of Rodgers' backroom staff, Adam Sadler, I'm not sure what they're trying to achieve. No, I'm I'm with you on that. I, the international break was the moment I thought a lot of clubs would act. Some of them did. Tottenham eventually, Palace effectively appointed some Roy Hodgson in, in that window. And that would have given a new man, a completely fresh set of eyes, a chance to assess the, the squad over what's effectively 10 days ahead of the 10-game the run-in. Leicester's decision to get rid of Brendan Rodgers after that loss at, at Sellers Park at the weekend, I mean, that just shows there was no plan. There, There is no grand strategy here. You can't assume that uh, Mick Sowell and Adam Sadler are going to are gonna 
do anything different to Brendan Rodgers. I mean, there is an argument that you have somebody in in the way that that Chelsea have with Bruno Saltor. That's just just almost a bit of a bit of continuity, a sli- you know, a slightly fresher voice, but a bit of continuity for a while ahead of a, an appointment. Although Chelsea are in a very different scenario to Leicester City, but but to have to have no firefighter lined up to come in immediately and take up the reins is is very very risky. I'd have thought, but probably a, an indication of of the the financial situation at Leicester, the, the, the sort of constraints that 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 Rogers probably struggled with towards the end of his his tenure there, but also the you know the dilemma that that club is in i mean they get that go down and the finances are going to be a hell of a lot worse it just feels as if they need an experienced man a benitez type manager just to come in and just see if they can just steady the ship because it only needs two wins two three wins to and you as as mig says and you're you're well out of trouble albeit for a couple of weeks and the one thing about Leicester that they have that that really none of those other teams have in that bottom half is they do have goals in the team. They have scored 40 this season and you just feel as if they could just sort out the defence a bit and having watched them on Saturday, they really need to sort out the defence a bit. But they they might be able to tweak things and survive. Mm. Because what we're looking at here is the the dynamics of the managerial market, if you like, Miguel. I know this is a knee-jerk view, but isn't someone of Graham Potter's style and personality and strategic approach really well suited to a club like Leicester. But the reality is he's probably not going to be around at least until the summer because he must be burnt out. Yeah, I mean, and that's one side of it. The other side of it is that as good as Potter is a coach and as well suited he is to Leicester is 10 games that could well see the champions from seven years ago relegated. Really the best context for him to try and impose that. Also, I mean, there's actually a risk there for Potter as well. Even, Even though such a situation shouldn't, affect his managerial career given the kind of constraints and context we're talking about but then suddenly he could be facing up to and these sort of perceptions are important in careers we could be facing up to a season for him that has really almost transformed his profile one that started with he beats uh, Manchester United at Old Trafford on what seems an obvious upward trajectory as he's kind of one of the brightest coaches in European football gets the Chelsea job loses it after what was a pretty dull six months and then for that to end with relegation with a club like Leicester, who really shouldn't be in this position, and it wouldn't be through his fault, but still, it w- it wouldn't be seen as reflecting that well. And so I can completely see Graham Potter, as well as needing a break, which I think which he should take, and it's probably arguable that more managers should do that, just even the situation should put him off. But even from that, as you, as you mentioned there, it's, it isn't incredible we're in this situation where we have a, a team that won the Champions League a year and a half ago, and could well win it again this season. A team going for a second successive Champions League qualification in Spurs, and in Leicester, who were champions seven years ago. All of them, it's not even like they have caretaker managers in, as Dom has mentioned, or someone like Goose Hiddink. Or, they've actually got these, these stands, two of them, with no previous managerial experience at all. It's an incredible situation for, as we as is so often described, the best league in the world and the... Uh, and the wealthiest, anyway. The other thing to bear in mind with Leicester is the the, the sheer number of players that are out of contract at that club it, come the summer. So it's, it's a real issue that I, I, I mean, some of them aren't in featuring. You, Yuri Tielemans has you know has been conspicuous in his absence of late. But but how does a manager, even an experienced manager like Rogers, hope to motivate 
a team of players that know that if they well if they go out and and make that extra stretch or or make that extra tackle and risk an ACL then they're out of contract in the summer and facing nine months out and their entire careers on the on the line it's 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 a really difficult one motivating that when you there has to be an inkling in all these players' heads as to what's happening next. What, what you know, they, it will be there. It will be sitting on their shoulder, wondering what their future is and wh- where they're going to be playing their football and whether that affects their commitment this season. I know that Roy Hodgson, when he was speaking about his last spell at Palace, and he had like I think it was twelve or thirteen players out of contract in the summer, and Palace was safe, but he said it was a real issue trying to motivate that team because none of them knew really what their futures held and that they all suspected it wasn't at that club. And I imagine it's the same problem with Leicester. It's a real perfect storm. Mm, that's a really good point, actually. I hadn't thought of that. You know, I suppose in the most immediate term, Leicester have got Bournemouth at home on Saturday. Migs, this is the classic cutthroat game, isn't it? Given Bournemouth have also slipped back into the bottom three. Yeah, and to be honest, actually, we, we should really get used to these because just <laughs> given that... Well, at least nine of the Premier League are in this. There's going to be at least one of these every single week. And this is maybe the first... I mean, Good. you know... I love it. It's, it's started this <laughs> <I> week. <don't. laughs> <laughs> but Palace should be... You'd think they'd have enough now. you think Everton would have enough. But until, I suppose, they're mathematically clear, they're still in it. And, yeah. And I, and I, I read a point where actually it genuinely is unpredictable. And it does feel a little bit... That, that half of the Premier League is almost like a vision of what the whole competition could be if you didn't have this modern history of kind of six clubs or so pulling away from the rest because it really is just so congested. And yeah, and it's it's that is one where it's hard to know what to expect. Particularly, I mean, given Bournemouth have actually been quite decent lately, you would think they they actually should have enough for Leicester and could really make things difficult for Leicester from that from there. But again, just with the way this season has gone and with the way the bottom half has gone. I wouldn't exactly put, be putting too much stock even in that. Well, with the average tenure of the Premier League manager, one year and 241 days, these are extremely insecure times, let's put it like that. Steve Cooper is hanging on to his job at Nottingham Forest by a thread. But how unfair is that, Don? Because if you look at it, what more could he have done He inherited a team at the bottom of the championship, somehow put together a Premier League team from 30 random strangers, and now he's basically, you know, next neck on the block. Yeah, look, it's it's grossly unfair. I think the very fact that Forrest go into the last nine games of their season still in contention to stay in the division is testament to the job that he's done there because they have no right to to do that really they had so many lone players that helped them get out of the division and bearing in mind as you say when when he took over they were they were rock bottom of the championship not the premier league the championship he did an incredible job last season to get a a bit of a hodgepodge of a team of of loanees and some very good talented youngsters up into the division and Given the sheer number of players that have been through the, the door at the city ground this this time round, 29, 30 recruits, whatever it is, for them to be in contention and still in with a chance of staying in the division is, is, is a real indication of how good he is. They were always going to struggle. They, their run of games coming up is horrible. I mean, you don't look at them and think, it doesn't smack of revival anytime soon. So it's going to be a real slog. But 
the very nature of the Premier League means that you know if they if they can pick up points in their games with, I don't know, maybe Southampton at home. They've got Palace still to play away. There'll be others in that in that group who are sort of mid-table by the time that they play them. Even Chelsea, then they could still stand a chance of staying up. What is a new bloke going to do? What's a new fella coming in and and taking over that that squad going to do? It's it's it, there's no guarantee that that's going to suddenly kickstart a revival either. He's going to have to get to know a squad that are still getting to know each other. I mean, it's you just I hope that I hope that he's given until the end of the season at the very very least. I fear he won't be, but I I I, I hope he is and that he 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 clings on and that that Forest prolong their their battle to stay in the division because they've been a real breath of fresh air this time. Mm, but Easter's reputation for being decisive is likely to be highlighted, isn't it, Migs? When you think of it, Forest are at Villa on Saturday. Hardly an auspicious time to visit uh, Villa Park. The appointment of Unai Emery is you know, almost the exemplar of getting the change right, isn't it? Well, that's it. Yeah, Villa are an indication of how important it is to to get the timing right as well. I mean, I think there's there's all sorts of statistics now. Duncan Alexander did one in the Athletic about how the later you go in a season, as regards a managerial change, the less effect it has. And it feel like that if if Forrest were to get rid of Cooper, it it feels like it would. I mean, beyond the fact that we're talking about one one of the best coaches in the league, and the fact it would be absurd to look at that far situation and think Cooper is in any way one of the problems. But if they were to get rid of him, it's difficult to see how it would have that much of an effect. I mean, if they really wanted someone, a different approach or some sort of different impact, just to kind of, just, just to kind of, from the change of mood that a different manager can bring, the time to do it is really when Villa did it with Emery or, or even two months after that. Now, it would just feel like one of those desperate moves that is beginning to pretty much define this season. And certainly, I mean, if they were to do it, it, I mean, what sums it up is, it feels like Forrest have a lot better chance of going to Villa and getting a result if Cooper is there. If he's not, it's hard not to see him just being easily picked off by an Emery side or on really good form. But as, as regards to Easter being decisive, and the only reason that may not be so influential this season is again because of how wide the net is this season as regards relegation and the teams that could potentially suck in. And also because we're that bit earlier in the I mean, there's still 10 games to go. There's still over a quarter of the campaign left. That is a lot. It's like nine now. It's still a quarter left. That is a lot of football still to be played. With the World Cup, I mean, it's something we're actually not really talking about anymore. But it still feels like it's having a lot of unanticipated effects, maybe unseen effects as well, but that is influencing the situation. There's still a lot of football to be played, but it's impossible, I think, for us to be better served if their football was played under Cooper. Don, close to home, Crystal Palace, they've got the biggest breathing room of the nine. Was that three points? Three points, <laughs> yeah. Don't 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 sort of waste it. But um are, are you more confident that Palace will have enough to stay up? You know, they've got Leeds uh, at the weekend, which obviously is a difficult game. Well, look, the next five games are Leeds, Southampton, Everton, Wolves and West Ham. I mean, those are the, those are the matches that, that Palace need to to glean the points from to, to ensure they stay in the division. And beyond that, they've still got Bournemouth and Forest to play at home. So it's, 
it's in their hands. The, the, I, I don't think, I don't think one last minute win against Leicester City makes you safe in this division. I mean, I know everybody's sort of saying, oh, they'll, they'll be fine now, but I mean, that is a second win in eighteen games in all competitions and the first of the calendar year you'd hope it's the springboard for for better things and I think Roy Hodgson you can well judging by the reaction of certainly Ray Lewington who sprinted off down the touchline as if he was a 35 year old at the end of the the game was quite remarkable um they appreciate the the significance of it but it is just a start and it has to be the start of a of of three four five weeks of improved results and performances the one thing about Hodgson is I do think that they will he has got a good record against teams that are below him in the table. I mean, usually that's from a position of mid-table. I suppose that's where Palace are actually, 12th. They have been forever and they always will be. But it's, yeah, he, you'd like to think that he will pick up a few points and maybe a few wins just to, to keep them clear. The, the big the big unknown, of course, is the extent of Wilfred Zaha's injury because he was excellent against Leicester and looked like a player revived for the, the the period he was on the pitch, but you know he looked as if his groin popped, and uh, that that could be anything between you know three weeks to the end of the season. So we'll wait with bated breath for Roy's assessment on Friday. Okay, well Leeds were the biggest midweek winners, weren't they? Uh, Mix, I think it was five places they've gone up the table after beating Forest. Ten points from six games under Javi Garcia. Really important wins. Southampton, Wolves and Forest since he replaced Jesse Marsh. We didn't really know that much about him when he was at Watford, although the fact that he actually survived from just over a year at Watford tells you that he must be fairly decent. Yeah, and got into a cup final. Uh, well, I don't we think the result of that cup final, no reflection on the excellent job he did. Uh, I interviewed him in that period and um, I suppose there's a bit of a link because he's from the same area of Spain as my mother. Um <laughs> So uh, he's a really humble guy and I think a very good manager. It's it's quite interesting because I think that Leeds United managerial search was quite chaotic and they wanted Arnie Slot. But it's possible and I suppose this actually sort of goes against everything we said at the last half hour or so. But that is maybe one rare case of it potentially working out because they just got exactly the right man. I mean, I think immediately you can see the difference. I was at there their match against Arsenal on Saturday. And even though it ended up 4-1, it's more, that's more about Arsenal. But before that, before that opening goal, which was quite, I suppose, not a contentious penalty, but came from a rash decision from Ailing, they were, they were giving Arsenal problems. And you can see that there's a better shape about them. I think they're going to be a lot harder to beat. And from what he's done so far, from what he's done at Watford and, and, and at Osasuna in Spain... I'd, I'd be quite confident the Leeds have enough to say, maybe not completely comfortably given how this season is going, but I think they've got a bit more about them now through, through Gracia and also through the running of that team than a lot of the other clubs around them. Mm. Well, with things so tight at the bottom, there's a premium on experience, unity and organisation. Uh, those three qualities are being demonstrated by Everton under Sean Dyche. No surprise there then. We spoke about the specifics of survival. Well, welcome, Sean. Maybe welcome back, because last time we spoke was sort of mid-August. You were beginning actively to look at your options and opportunities. 
What were the lessons that you drew from that time, which obviously culminate in you coming here? Um, I don't know about lessons that culminated in me actually coming here, but things I reflected on about you know my time, well, at both clubs, Watford and Burnley, but obviously Burnley with more depth because of the years I was there. Reflecting on thoughts of what you do next, not just what comes next, but what you do next. You know, what are the things that you keep? What are the things that you change? Making sense of that. Along with having a rest as well, stepping away from everything, which I did for a number of months and enjoyed that in the right way, you understand. Not, not because I was demotivated um, remotely, just because I felt that it was right and I took advice from people saying, get away from it, just switch off for a while, you know, to get that real desire and hunger. Like I say, not that it wasn't there, but it sometimes needs, you know, the spark again and the, the fire to burn brighter. So really quite a lot going on. But you know yourself, the thing with hindsight is that you probably look more in depth now than when it was going, you know, when I first came out. When you first came out, you're just seeing your family and your kids and you're, you're seeing your mates and you're taking a few games in, having a few trips. And you're not overthinking it. Whereas when I look back now, and as you know, did a lot of Zoom work with different people, different companies, some coaches as well a few visits and then you actually think you reflect back and think actually I went I did quite a lot in that mm. sort of eight month period you know were there any specific things that you bring into action here now no not really I, I think I think the strange thing about coming here now I think it needed a certain stripping back as I call it you know partly sort of I, I call it embracing the past building a future or rebuilding a future because the past is, is vital and it's valid and, and the, the connection that a lot of the fans would have mm. with the years of the past and the older fans, of course, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, they're, they're valuable times and, and great values, I think, throughout a club. And I just felt they diluted a little bit. It's not they weren't there, just a little bit, you know, just almost like squeezed aside a bit and it become very, and we've got to play this way, got to play that way, which obviously football is, is like that now. And I felt some of the basics were missing, you know, in the, in the, how I look at teams and what they do. I really kind of spoke to the players about it very openly and said, look, I think we've got to get back down to the, the real nitty gritty of what it is as a team and then layer upwards rather than sort of playing with a certain way and then layering it backwards. So I said the bases, I call it, had to be put in place. So really focusing on that. To do that, sorry, in answer to your question, I don't think I needed to reflect too much on my learnings, I think, I think I knew that was important and I knew it was valuable and I knew it needed to be in place in the way that I work, certainly. So there's no question mark about previous managers or any of that. The way that I work, that has to be intact. So like I said, I came in with that knowledge already imprinted on me and then it was about transferring it into the staff that I've inherited and the players, of course, and, and slowly but surely that's been growing. There's a watchword of, of your time here already, relentless. Explain what actually that means in a football sense. Yeah, to me, it was something that started when I was working with young players at Watford. Because when they're young players, they're very malleable, as you can imagine. You know, they don't know what they don't know. So I was trying to teach them about professional standards, key core values and mentality. And then, of course, teaching them the game. But in my opinion, there's a lot of trainers out there and trainers use PowerPoints and do sessions. I'm a coach, so I coach the people as well. Now, that's a valuable thing for me. So I was instilling them in some of the, the mentality of, of being a professional. I was a professional for 20 years, had my ups and downs, successes and failures, bit of a journeyman, but I learned a lot through them 20 years at different levels, of course, different standards of clubs, different size of clubs. So some of the things I started reflecting on weren't necessarily 4-4-2, 4-3-3. It was about 
what's the underbelly, what's the underlying ingredients of making a young player or helping a young player to be the best they can be. And that's where things like relentlessness comes from. It's relentless in what you do, your pursuit of being the best, relentless on a daily basis, relentless in the details, relentless on the training pitch, relentless with anything you can do to make the best. And inevitably, as a team, then we've got to all be relentless because things can change all very, very quickly. So over a 90-whatever, 96-, 97-minute game, just stay with it. Just keep doing everything you can do to affect it. And don't be surprised if you do that when it does get affected. Mm. So that's where the thinking come from. Yeah, so it's sort of keep hanging on to the horse, the bucking bronco, basically. <laughs> yeah, it sounds about right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of noise about any club involved in a, you know, that's what, what is generally termed a relegation struggle. You know, now pressure is applied collectively, but how players deal with that strain is personal. You know, as a manager, how attuned do you have to be to the signs of maybe one or two individuals feeling the strain a little bit? Well, part of the, the idea, one of the big things I talk to the players about and the staff about is automaticity. So to get to automatic behaviours, you have to do them all the time. And once you get an automatic behaviour, if you know how to do things and you deliver them all the time so they normalise, well, then the idea of pressures, ups and downs dissipate slightly because you know that you're going to deliver it because you're delivering it all the time. Mm. So I really work on that basis on a daily basis. You know, we, we, we structure and we plan and we deliver on a daily basis so that when it is pressurised situation, you need it, you are ready to go. So that's one of the big things. And, and if you like, if we, if we get the structure and the basics and the core right and we're all agreed on that, well, then you don't have to go in thinking about it. That's all part, which allows you the time to focus on mm. what you need to. So you know, it becomes instinctive. Yeah, and, and like I say, that if you, if you can normalise behaviours, um, that being football behaviours, then when tough times, or, or great times, by the way, pressure comes in many ways. You know, I've had, I've had top pressure when we've been at the top getting promoted to the Premier League, as you know, and getting into Europe, when every point's a prisoner for a different reason. But it's still a pressure. So the, these, these habits and these behaviours are valuable anyway. They're not just about whether you're, you're, you're at the bottom or the top. They're about good behaviours all of the time. And then I just think once you've got that base to, to rely upon, then you can go in with a, with a bit more assured thinking that, you know, you are ready. And it's a fact. You know, your daily habits are delivering the fact you are ready. So if there is some form of pressure, we know what we're doing. We do it all the time. And here we go again, the whistle blows and we're ready. Now, of course, there'll be some detail around that. You can imagine flexibility. Mm. But that base that I talk about, that is part of it, working all, working properly all of the time until behaviours become automatic. Mm. How do you manage yourself so that, you know, you remain fresh and focused? You know, does someone in your job need an escape valve? In other words, like an interest outside the game so it just doesn't become... Yeah, I think, I think you do. I think varying people have varying forms of that. Mine is actually pretty simplistic. I like a beer now and again. I like a game of golf. I like seeing my family and my kids. I like gigs. That's a good release for me because gigs you can disappear. I was at a gig the other night. I went to watch the damned. I disappeared in the background and then disappeared out again and no one bothered me. No one even mentioned that I was there. I think one person who was literally standing next to me. That was it. That's a good release That's for me. Stuart Pierce, was it? No, but he is going, actually. No, he's going to watch Spirit Destiny in a couple of, uh, tomorrow, actually, in Manchester, the Ritz, but I can't do that one night before a game. Um, so that is a release for me. But pretty simplistic stuff. I like my music, as I said. I like travelling, but obviously that's not so easy. You know, and, and so it's pretty much, 
the other thing, you know what you forget is years of doing it. You know, like any job, the more years you do it, the more you handle the ups and downs, the ins and outs, the workload, the pressure. You delegate better as well, I found that, as you get older and you trust people more. As long as they're aligned with you, you trust them more, so you delegate better. I think you know how to manage yourself in the, in the sense of your energy levels, um, energy for what part of the moment in time is the most important. And media now, you know, media's an energy level you need because if you lose focus, you, you know, you can say one wrong word and then that makes a big story nowadays out of nothing because there's so many different media avenues. So I think, I think it's um, years of experience or more, more and more years of experience mixed with some pretty common sense stuff. Taking a rest when I need to, delegating when I need to, and just enjoying some of the things outside of football when I can, more than when I need to. Sometimes you need something and you can't get it, but it's nice when I can. What about a group culture and the importance of senior players, the sort of players who set personal and professional standards for the rest of the group? How important? Yeah, I think important. I think, um, you know, the early adopters, as we call it, often, not always, are the older players who, who have been maybe a bit more rounded, a bit more travelled. They've... They've learned themselves, of course, and they've learned some of the things they shouldn't have been doing and they should have been doing, and now they're a bit older, they reflect back. And therefore, they're a little bit more, not really open-minded, a little bit more professionally minded to what the role they deliver and what the group has to deliver. So I think there's that, and I think that's an important thing to have from older players. And the mutual respect, you know, you've got to respect them as well. Mm. Um, you know, there's... There's players who have done quite a lot in the game. It weren't the obvious one being Seamus. You know, Seamus has been here, I think it's 14, 14 seasons. Mm. Throughout his 14 seasons, ups, downs, ins, outs, hero zero, highs of the club, tough times of the club. He's seen all of that sort of stuff. And yet still an immaculate pro, still going strong, still sending the right messages, the right vibes about everything that we're trying to achieve. Very respectful of the outgoing manager as well. You know, he was the first to say, we haven't done our bit which, you know, they spoke to me about the players, felt that they, they could have done more. All of them things go into the melting pot. So therefore, your older players, I think, deserve the respect they're due. Equally, they often show a bit more mutual respect because they're a bit older and wiser and a bit more travelled some of them. So therefore, they've been the ups and downs and they know what's good practice, they know it's maybe not. So you're looking for a self-governing dressing room in many ways? I think it helps. I think... I always think you have to lay down the, the, the culture and the environment to the staff, first of all, the team behind the team. That's really important to me because they often send the right tone and the right messages as well. And then within the group, once they understand, I think you've got to be clear. I give them clear guidelines on my, my expectations, both from a professional behaviour point of view and a professional performance point of view. I lay that down very, very early and we have some negotiables and non-negotiables, some serious stuff, some small stuff. And then really, over time, you look for other players. You know, you look for key signs. Are the players now taking responsibility for that? And obviously, every manager of every kind, I would imagine, through business as well, I speak to a few businesses, the partner is when they do start taking ownership and responsibility and they do start demanding off of each other without you always demanding. You know, they, they do within the camp. And, and I think that's an important factor. Mm. With those senior players, you mentioned Seamus Coleman. Obviously, he's one of the one of those players who has the DNA of the club in his blood, basically. Another player that obviously you know well, James Tarkovsky, he'd always struck me as one of those players, I did James Milner a couple of weeks ago. James Milner's gonna be a coach and a manager, you know, that's as clear as day. Someone like James, I could see actually moving into that direction as well. I don't know whether that's a misleading impression, but you know him very well, 
that relationship between you two, how important was that in almost like the transitional phase? Because you know what footballs are like. They'd have been all on to him. You know, his phone would have blown up when you got the job. What's he yeah. like? All that stuff. Yeah, probably more so Tarky because of the character he is. You know, Dwight as well, but he's quite a quieter character. So the players probably wouldn't have gone straight to Dwight. It probably would have been Tarkino a little bit as well, because Kino's been here a longer time, a lot of respect for him within the group, a well-liked figure. But yeah, Tarky's probably just coming out of working with me for a long time. I imagine that I would like to think it would have been fair, a fair assessment of the way that I work. I mean, those are staff as well. Steve Stone and Ian Wona have come in and Mark Howard. I, I would like to think he'd, he'd give a fair view. I would think he would have told them some of the obvious things and some of the myths that they've heard as well and maybe corrected a few of them. I must say, you know, in, in reference to Tarkin, I don't always like talking about individuals, but in a, in a tough season at the end of my tenure at Burnley, he was absolutely fantastic. His contract was running out. He was playing like with every inch of his life to change the team around, the fortunes around. And I respect that. That's not easy. You know, when your contracts were out, he could have been looking after himself. He wasn't. He was doing everything he could to look after the team. And I take great value in him as a person for doing that because it's not easy when things are not going well and you you know there's an exit for you. Because it's pretty obvious Tarky was going to get a pretty good move, I would, I would imagine. I certainly thought he would. And he got a good move to a good club like Everton. And he deserved it. Mm. You mentioned Michael Keane there. You know, he's that classic case of the experienced player who comes back. What did you see in him that others didn't, perhaps? But also, what went through your head when he scored that equaliser against Spurs? Because, you know, you talked about the culture of the club. The place was going nuts. Yet, when the whistle went, you had the mask on. You know, you observed the professional formalities with, you know, the other set of coaches. What's going through your head there? You must, there must have been a degree of, of, of huge satisfaction and, a, and probably a realisation of what this club's about. Well, firstly, and more importantly with Keno, is look, you have ups and downs as a, as a player. There's not always an exact moment which occurs, but he's a bit older, he's a bit wiser, a bit more rounded than when, I, than when he left me before. I spoke to him clearly. He, he's very trusting of me, um, you can imagine. Mm. So I spoke to him very clearly, very honestly, as I do, and, and said, look, I don't think you're sharp enough. I think you've got to get you fitter. We've got to get you stronger. And I said, spoke to him about a few details in training that I reminded him of, that some of his things that I used to notice when he wasn't quite playing well that were lacking. So he sharpened up on them. Took a risk because Conor Code is a fantastic pro and doing well, and took a, a chance on Keno, went in at Arsenal. People are saying, oh yeah, we got beat 4-0. I wasn't looking for whether it's his fault or not. I was looking for, you know, are you ready? Or can you handle it physically? Played well the next game and he's played well since. So. That was a, these are these are fine margin calls, you know, when you when you change your people like Keane over Connor Cody. And then going on to myself and his goal, fantastic strike. He is a very good finish. There's a standard joke amongst the players about his finishing, the quality of it. And then the idea at the end of the game is look, it's another point on the board. There's nothing done, there's nothing achieved. I've just always been like that. You know, I used to players used to like laugh at me because when I used to play, I was captain at clubs and I mean, one chairman actually asking me deliberately, why don't, you know, saying, why don't I go and clap all the fans and all that? I said, it's just not really my bag. I said, I respect them. And I used to play, shake hands with the nearest home, jog off. Because I was like, yeah, well, it's just another, it's another day. We've got, we got whatever, you know, in the Premier League, 38 of these. So it doesn't mean I'm not feeling it, by the way. Of course I'm feeling the, the respect of a group that's just given their lot to win a game, on this occasion got a draw. The energy of a fan base that's been incredible since I got here, of course it's there. And I respect it, but it's just not authentic to me to be running up and down the line, Snyder nominees and all that. That's not authentic to me. It's not the behaviour that I think is appropriate for me personally. I'm not judging anyone else. 
as a manager of a football club. And I try and withhold my self-respect as well as the respect for the staff that are opposite, you know, because I just think that there's a moment in time when, that, you know, things can happen in the coaches' areas because people are sort of doing them weird actions that kind of wind people up. That's not my bag. I just try and act authentically to me. And that's what I'm like. The, it's another point on the board. The work isn't done. The job isn't done. We've got more points to get on the board, I assure you. So I just stay focused on the bigger picture. Mm. Now, you know, we do talk about culture a lot, don't we? And obviously there's a very strong sense of identity here. You're a club builder by inclination. Is that a really good marriage between your inclinations and this club's opportunity? I don't say yes, by the way. Oh, yeah, um, but, but at the end of the day, look, there's no defining moment and there's no... Uh, not defining moment, sorry. There's no exact moment when you think it's all done or joined. But I think we're on the right pathway. I think, you know, it's a different kind of... The building at Burnley was a different kind of building. It was building the structure and everything, you know, building training grounds and the like. This has got all of that. This is like, say, I was mentioning, you know, respect the, the past, the, sort of build a future. So it's all rebuild a future. I don't mean rebuild it because it's massively broken. I just mean it maybe needed an inner building of people, not so much the structure, not so much the size of the club. Obviously, you'll know there's a new stadium coming and all them things. Mm. Different kind of building. I think it was a rebuilding inside the mentality, the, 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 the work ethic, the, the belief, the connection with the fans, you know, the, the connection as with the, the blue part of a city that is steeply bound in football culture, as you know. So that's what I felt was appropriate. Of course, I'm, as you know, you've known me a long time. I'm not naive. You're still going to win games and you've got to try and provide a brand and a style that is appropriate and accepted. But underneath all that, what's actually the thing that makes a football club? What are the key core values that you represent? Well, first of all, in my opinion, you represent yourself, the staff and the players, but you also represent the people. Therefore, I think Liverpool as a city has an earthiness. The blues of the city have an earthiness. They have a connection with the club, the history of the club. And I just think that is a very, very powerful thing. And I think it deserves to be respected. In modern society, sometimes them things get almost pushed away a little bit. I don't think they should be. I think that is a, a massive building block for this football club to continue onwards, whether I'm here or not. And I just think I'm, I'm trying to revive the belief and the, the sentiment and the, the heartbeat of a club whilst adding in the modern technology, analysis, sports science, style, hopefully, brand, but not forgetting about the heartbeat. And I think that's really, really important at all clubs, but particularly certain clubs and particularly Everton Football Club. OK. As a final point, it's been another tumultuous week for your profession, putting it mildly. The rates of attrition are becoming much more punishing. I saw a stat the other day. The average tenure in Premier League management, one year, and 241 days. Does that sort of time frame influence the way managers do their job? Well, I think um, similar but different point that you were just bringing up in the sense that, so on the one hand, right, so I've been told in the past I'm being naive because I'm trying to build the club and what it stands for. I've said that many, many times. You're not gonna get long enough, so therefore don't try and do that. Just try and win enough games or whatever. And I get that thought thinking because, as you said, the stats almost suggest that is going to happen. But then you've still got to be true to yourself. You know, what's your way of working? Did I come into Everton Football Club thinking, oh, well, let's see if I can be there for one year and 241 days that you just said? No, I didn't. I come in going open-mindedly, right, can I play my part? First of all, in being a, a custodian. Secondly, building it and looking after it. And thirdly, being successful for a longer period. 
Well, to do that, I've got to lay down the things that I think are very, very important and then layer up on top of that. So that's what I'm trying to do. I, I don't look at it like, oh, well, the stats say you're only going to be there 18 months or whatever. I don't look at it like that. I look like, right, OK, what can we build to make a difference and let's see where it begins to take us. So that's the way I look at it. I don't, I don't put timescales on it. Balance to my words there are that the stats and the facts do show you. So I do, on the other hand, know coaches who just go to football clubs and go, no, no, I just coach the team and I work hard at it. If it goes wrong, that's the way it goes. If it goes well, then that's the way it goes. That's just not for me. You know, I believe there's more to it than that. Affect the people, affect their performance, affect the staff, affect the feel, affect the, the club, affect the whole group of people to get their noses pointed in the right direction. That's my way of working. And as a, as a final, final point, when you look at the qualities that are almost undervalued in a hire and fire culture that we've just spoken about, your qualities are very, very distinct, aren't they? What will tell you that you're on the right track here? In other words, what would success look like here? Obviously, you know, staying up is the initial... Yeah, yeah, immediate success. Mm -hmm. But there's been some form of success whether I hold dear already, and that's why I just spoke on the alignment. I think there is beginning to be a real strong connection or reconnection between the staff, the players, the fans, the feel, the whole what it is to be an Evertonian. And, and it's, not, it's not fixed yet by any means, but it's, it, you can feel it. It's, you walk in the stadium, you can sense it. That, that's a, that's a, a, a win in itself because it's fair to say when I got here, the noise wasn't the same. So that's one form of a win. But obviously to support that, you've got to win physically. You've got to literally win mm. or certainly win enough to make sure you safeguard in the Premier League. So then you build another connection on top of that. So there's been some small wins already. There's been some actual wins, as in on the pitch. And now it's about keep working to bring it all together. It's never, it's never truly fixed forever, but I believe there's a healing process that's going on. The team, the fans, the feel of a club. And I think it's definitely happening. And now it's just we've got to continue to find consistencies to make it happen. Mm. So survive and thrive. Thanks for your like time. Like it. Your, your words, not mine, but very good ones. <laughs> Cheers, mate. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Thanks. An excellent appointment for what will probably be a two-phased job. Survive and then thrive. Yeah, I mean, the immediate task is to stay in the division and they've already got, I think, 12 points under his his uh, management. And you can see some of the qualities that his team have, have demonstrated. From the, from the first game against Arsenal, where they, where they were back to the sort of bullying best... Which you'd expect from uh, you, you, we've seen it before from the sort of Burnley team. I know they didn't always get great results against the top six, but they had the reputation and they certainly had the capabilities of of, of bullying teams and 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 exploiting set pieces, etc. But even in recent weeks, almost more impressive has been this resilience and defiance again that had been sort of lacking from Everton through that horrible period in the middle of the season where they just we're losing every week and everything seems so listless and you know the, the point at Chelsea okay Chelsea aren't what they were but the, to come back from behind twice at Chelsea and, and do what they they did was was really really impressive with the last minute with the last minute goal as well from Ellis Sims and then against Spurs on Monday even when they had 10 men Everton and they were playing against 11 
it just felt as if there was only one team that was going to score the next goal. Tottenham were awful in possession. I don't think. I, I, I mean, they're plumbing new depths at some of their their passing in that in that game. But when you have a centre half meandering forward and pinging one in the way that Michael Keane did later on, it just makes you the, the, the sense growing that we're going places now. We are we're a different beast. Four games unbeaten. They look far better now than that sort of that mess that got hammered at, at Arsenal under Dyche actually back in the beginning of March and it, it's it's us against the world at Everton yet again it's a sort of revisiting last season maybe not with the pitch invasions and the and the general sense of madness but the world is out to get them the Premier League's out to get them the ownership they hate the ownership but but they the team is giving them a bit of defiance out on the pitch to latch onto and to and to sustain them through this this run into a, a very difficult season. And and Sean Dyche epitomises and personifies that. And yeah, kick on from the summer absolutely if you can, because it's not going to be easy given that the, the issues around that club. But but Dyche's reputation will will be enhanced by what he's done at Everton, I suspect. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose it does highlight. Migs, the importance of senior players, you know, the restoration of Michael Keane and also the inspiration of Seamus Coleman, who seems to have, you know, the DNA of the club running through him. Yeah, no, to be fair with Coleman, <clears throat> there was a famous clip of Lampard kind of talking him up in front of the squad. And I, and I suppose you could say that, that that sort of spirit was important in keeping Everton up last season. I mean, that shouldn't be overlooked with Lampard as well. Actually, in terms of Lampard, this maybe shouldn't be overlooked either. The factor is obviously different, but he did a better job at Chelsea than Graham Potter did. Uh, <laughs> at least if you, if, you, if, you, if you kind of, I suppose, might be a surprise to a lot of people in the way we discuss these things. But the, the bare facts are there, even if obviously the factors are different. But yeah, he, he, he lent on players like Coleman, if not Michael Keane. And that was important to last season. And Dyche, who's even more attuned to that sort of or to engendering that sort of mentality and that sort of defiance than Lampard is, well, he's getting even more out of everything. And, and that's the thing, I suppose. That's, that's what's Im- immediately noticeable with this side. They're, just, they're suddenly very well organised and hard to break down. And again, I actually think to a greater degree than Javi Gracia, maybe comparable to Crystal Palace, Everton are one of those who suddenly haven't been right in the middle of it for so long, could just create a little bit of a cushion between themselves and the rest. So, they, I mean, they're, even though what, it's, it was eight or nine at the moment, I think you could feasibly see Palace, Everton and Leeds just getting away. But with this season, I mean, who's to know? But the one thing we do know is that Dyche at the very least is usually a guarantee uh, of of that sort of effect. Mm. Well, they certainly got winnable fixtures against Fulham, who seem to be imploding. Palace, with respect, Dom, and Leicester after Saturday's game at uh, Old Trafford. They're also at home to Bournemouth in the last game of the season if they need to get out of jail car. So really, survival's in their own hands, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. But then you could argue that for all of them. I mean, we, you know, Mick's saying there that, that he sees Everton, Palace and Leeds all pulling away. Well, they can't because they all play each other. So they can't all pull away. Oh, yeah. I mean, that is, that, that's, that, is, that is the intrigue around this this division everybody sort of looks at the run-ins and say well you know there's some winnable games there and I mean as a Palace fan I've been doing that all season believe me but the reality is that that those teams your opposition will be targeting those fixtures against Palace against Everton against Leeds as an opportunity amidst tougher using the older inverted commas uh, 
fixtures. So it's 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 going to be intriguing. But but Everton's home form will go a long way, and the, and the, the way that they can make it intimidating. I was at Goodison Park last season when Lampard and and his team whipped up a frenzy in the in the run, and it is an intimidating place to go. The, the The issue they've got is that they don't score goals, but then that's an issue that all those teams bar Leicester really have got. I think Everton's leading goal scorer is Damari Gray with four. I mean, it's it's not that that is an issue. They're never going to, you know, wipe the floor with a with a team. So they're going to be tense matches throughout. But when you've got like a, a, a Tarkovsky, you've got a, a revived Keane, and you've got that resilience, a bit of a know-how at the back. Jordan Pickford, England's, you know, stellar goalkeeper in there. I think you could probably grind out a few more results than some of those teams around you. But look, it's changing every week. It it, it only needs. A few rushes of blood like Abdullah Dekure's thrusting a hand in Harry Kane's face for the whole landscape to change again because, you know, Dekure's actually, I think, the leading goal scorer for Sean Dyche at Everton with two. Uh, and now he's going to be absent for three games. You know, if, if you lose a couple of players, if you lose a Tarkovsky, then suddenly they don't look quite as, as assured. So that adds to this sense of drama that is going to, I want to say, sustain us over the last 10 weeks, but it's actually just going to make life hell. <laughs> there folks is the voice of experience <laughs> um, let's crane our, our necks up as a little bit Megs if we could as I said they're Everton playing Manchester United at the weekend in the BT Sport Saturday lunchtime game okay Brighton are four points off the top four and unearthed yet another young South American player but really are we looking at the top four places really being between obviously you know the the top two are away Manchester United Newcastle and Spurs and I'm assuming everyone assumes that Spurs are going to be the ones who miss out well given that Brighton can go ahead of Spurs if they win the two games in hand I actually think we have to put Brighton in there now I mean it will be a stretch to see them do it especially given the point situation with Newcastle and and Manchester United but Basically, at the moment, they just there's a better outlook to them than Spurs. They're able, they're, they're exciting to watch. They take the game. They've got, they've got. I mean, even allowing for Harry Kane kind of get, being the guarantee of goals that he is, Brighton have more points of attack. They're not so dependent on one striker, and that's even allowing for the kind of uh, the exciting form of Evan Ferguson. So, you wouldn't say they're right in there, but if ever there's a chance for Brighton to qualify for the Champions League, this is it. It could, they could be aided now as well by Manchester United, who are, it looks like are really feeling the effect of so much football. But it's also kind of going for so many trophies in that they, they can still win three in a season that at the moment still feels like it's it's very kind of open for them and how it could look. I mean, obviously winning the League Cup and, and claiming that first piece of silverware since 2017 is hugely significant and a landmark. But it will be slightly disappointing if that's all they end up, especially if they miss out in the Champions League. But certainly, there's a vulnerability to Manchester United right now. And in contrast to Everton, who have that kind of emotional momentum with them, and Brighton, who have a lot more than emotional momentum with, with them, there's suddenly that kind of deflation around United right now. I mean, you would think they've got enough quality for things, to even, especially with so much football to play. But they need a bit of a spark again, given their form has been so bad since winning that League Cup. Now, the return of Ericsson to the team and Casemiro, who are evidently so important to how that side functions, uh, will be crucial. Yeah. Now, Chelsea, a club you know well, Dom, that game against Liverpool on Tuesday night, 
I shudder to think how much money was paid for those players. I, I've heard estimates around a billion pounds for just an absolute amorphous blob of a game. Where are Chelsea going to go, do you think? Because it does seem, even being charitable, that the owners, let's say, are struggling to come to terms with the culture of the game they've bought into. They've got a heck of a fixture list coming up. Arsenal, Manchester City, Manchester United, Newcastle. They've obviously got the little matter of a, a Champions League quarterfinal against Real Madrid. Did Chelsea know where they're going? They've obviously taken the bold decision to go back to Frank Lampard to see them through until the end of the season and on an interim basis, which you know you might consider quite surprising given that this is a, a figure that was leaving Everton earlier this season under a bit of a cloud, but and indeed had been sacked by Chelsea back in 2021. However, that in terms of you know lancing the toxicity that's been building up at Stamford Bridge I suppose you could argue that he you know returning a, a club icon back to the fold to oversee the club in a, in a traumatic time there's a logic to that certainly some of the match going supporters at Chelsea will be will be pleased to see a, a familiar face back in the fold someone that they can identify with someone that represents Chelsea as far as they're concerned and I think a bit of familiarity will provide a bit of reassurance at a difficult time. But in terms of the whole wider pitch of the culture of the club, I mean they've got the owners have got to use this this period with Lampard in charge to come up with a long term solution, to come up with a an appointment in the summer who is going to take Chelsea on to the next level and is going to be able to cope with some of the issues that Graham Potter struggled with, namely that this is a hugely bloated squad, forty plus professionals and a, a, a club that's in transition, a team that's in transition, a team that is struggling to come to terms with the fact that it's not in Premier League contention and next year might not even be competing in Europe. So it's it's going to be a difficult, difficult task. But the, the, the owners are learning on the hoof. They've got to hope that their next permanent appointment is the right one because Potter wasn't. And they've got to hope that Frank Lampard is a steadying hand to take them through to the summer. As I say, I think match match going supporters will probably welcome his his arrival back at the club. Hmm. If you're Nagel's man, would you go to Chelsea or would you maybe start winking at Real Madrid? Well, this is something that's hanging over Chelsea actually a lot, being that two of their main candidates, Nagelsmann and Pochettino, their first choice probably on something hanging over. They they, they both really want Real Madrid. But even that, of course, is dependent on the fact that with Madrid, it sounds like it's 50-50 if Carlo Ancelotti actually goes. So I suppose maybe they can't afford to hang around. But it's it's interesting, even this kind of managerial, I mean, it, it, it's like just, just tears to it, really. And almost maybe things happening at the wrong time for certain people in certain clubs in that Spurs obviously acted first and their main, or their, I suppose, top shortlist or the top end of their shortlist is very similar to Chelsea. But Chelsea suddenly becoming available makes life difficult for Spurs. But then on the other side, if, say, for example, if it was to be confirmed that Ancelotti was to leave, well, that would do to Chelsea what Chelsea have done to Spurs, that suddenly there's a more available job or a more interesting job again, a more attractive job. I, I put up a story this morning. Luis Enrique is travelling to London. He's someone who wouldn't go to Real Madrid and apparently impressed in initial talks. So I think that was one, from the way people in Spain are talking at least, 
although I suppose this mirrors how people in Germany were talking, he might have as much of a chance as Nagelsmann. But it does feel like we're in a situation where everyone who kind of does well on interview will be thinking they're the one and Chelsea <laughs> are insistent they're not that close to a decision. But yeah, yeah, um, it, it totally does. It, 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 it's actually, whatever about the spinning plates of the wider season in the summer to come, it feels like there's a lot of spinning plates to this Chelsea job. Mm. Well, to draw everything together, it's really strange to think but Romelu Lukaku is still a Chelsea player. He is, in, to all intents and purposes, a £97 million afterthought. Now, that's unfair, but it pales into insignificance compared to the treatment that he's receiving in Syria. It was beyond understanding that he was expected to endure vile racial abuse before, during and after his successful penalty which earned into a cup draw against Juventus. He celebrated the goal. Well, who wouldn't? And was sent off for it. That's unbelievable. The response of many in Italian football was to shrug and change the subject. Lukaku is an intelligent, well-read, highly professional athlete. He has every right to feel betrayed. Frankly, his teammates should have walked off with him. In the meantime, I'd just like to thank Sean Dyche for his time and thanks also to Miguel and Dominic for their insights. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.